Maybe not exactly. All right, uh, Acts chapter 10 is where we are. Now we're in the middle of sort of a passage, and in a sense, we're in the middle of a sermon. Um, so this is kind of part two of where we were last week. And I understand that uh, for many of you, you may not have been here last week, or uh, for whatever reason you uh, have forgotten, if you were here, uh, all that we did. So let me just remind you quickly of uh, a couple of things about where we were last week. This, the sermon title was To the Jew First and to the Gentile. And it occurred to me, uh, as I was thinking about this during the week, uh, there may be some of us here that don't even know what a Gentile is, and, and I never defined it, and I apologize for that. A Gentile is essentially a non-Jew. And so as you look in the scripture, particularly as you look in the Old Testament, God pretty much divided humanity up into the Jews and the Gentiles, those, the promised people, those that he called to himself, the chosen people, and the Gentiles, those that weren't Jews. And as we we're digging into the scripture last week. We spent some time in chapter 10 learning about it. one of those Gentile men, a Roman soldier, a, an officer in the Roman army. He was a centurion. That meant he led a group of about 100 people. And how that Roman official, that Roman soldier, his name was Cornelius, how God began to do a work within that man's life. Now, within the context of Judaism. And Cornelius, as we learned, he was what was called a God-fearer. That means he put aside sort of his Roman pagan deities uh, where they had so many of them. And he put them aside and he began to adopt and respect and accept some of the practices of Judaism. But had not gone all the way of becoming a Jew himself. Had not been circumcised, had not adopted perhaps the dress and some of the behaviors of the Jews. But he certainly was a respecter of the Jewish faith. And Luke described him in a number of ways. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. And he described him in a number of ways. He called him a devout man who feared God. He said that he gave generously to the people, particularly the Jewish people, to care for their needs, the poor, and that he prayed continually to God. And so the Jews would have looked at a man like this and said, you know, that's, that's a pretty good dude. He's on his way. He's not all the way there yet, but he's on his way to being in right relationship with God. However, he's not all the way there yet. And so a good observing Jew might see someone like Cornelius, this centurion, and they might smile at them, they might nod at them, but they would not go and socialize with them or fellowship with them. And they certainly wouldn't go into the home of such a one because they're a Gentile. Now that creates, and we saw it created, a dilemma for the Apostle Peter. Because Peter, even though he was a Christian and a follower of Christ, he was still Jewish by birth and by practice. Additionally, Peter, he held the almost universally understood idea among both Jews and Christians at that time that for a person to get right with God, they had to first convert to Judaism, or at least second convert to Judaism if they became a Christian. And so Christianity was in the minds of those early believers a Jewish religion. And so again, if a person was to become a Christian, they would also have to adopt the Jewish faith as well. Now the Lord had a different plan, and the Lord had a different understanding of how a person could get right with God. 
And he intended, as we saw last week, to use Peter to introduce that plan. Peter, however, was not yet ready. God had to work in Peter before he could work through Peter. And so a quick review then of last week's study. Verses 1 through 8, the angel appears to Cornelius, instructs him to send men to another city to find a guy named Peter and bring him to Caesarea where Cornelius was. Then we saw in verses 9 to 16, as those men were traveling to go get Peter, God began to do the work in Peter. And Peter went up on the, the rooftop there, and he was praying at one particular point in time, and God revealed in a vision uh, some things to Peter. So God gave Peter a vision. And the vision was of a great sheet, picnic sheet of sorts, being lowered down from the heavens, set there in front of Peter. On it, reptiles, animals, birds, all kinds of animals that Peter would have never eaten as a good kosher Jew, and there it comes down in front of him, Peter is sitting there looking at this vision, and a voice from heaven saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, Peter can't kill and eat those animals. They're unclean. That's unkosher. He's trying to be a good Christian, which in his mind means to be a good Jew. And so the vision, the, uh, vision disappears for a moment, comes back again. Exact same thing happens. Vision disappears, comes back again a third time, and that's it. And Peter is left to ponder to think about, to consider these things. I remind you, he said to the Lord, not so, Lord. When the Lord said to him, eat these things, he said, I can't eat these things. And the Lord kept saying to him, what I've called clean, don't call unclean. What I've called clean, don't call unclean. He said it to him three times. And then the vision was over. And Peter stuck to think about this. It says in, I think, verse 17, that he was perplexed. What could this mean? Why would God show me this particular vision? Why would he tell me to do something that our people haven't done for 2,000 years? And then it says he stayed up on the roof and he pondered these things, trying to figure out. And it seems Peter came to this conclusion, this feels like it's more than just food that God is talking about. But what could he be talking about? And he's trying to figure these things out. We saw that in those verses there up to about verse 19. And as he was thinking about these things, so to speak, there comes a knock on the, the gate to the, the property there. The people call out, we've come a great distance. Is there a Peter that lives here, or at least that is staying here? And Peter heard his name. There were three men outside that were looking for him. Peter comes down. He says, I'm the man you're looking for. How can I help you? Part of the reason why he's so prompted to do that, motivated to do it, quick to do it, it's because the Lord had said to him, Peter, there's three men downstairs looking for you. Rise and go with them without objection. Now, Peter doesn't know who they are. He just knows there's three men downstairs. And so he comes downstairs and he finds three Gentiles. Clear by their dress, what they're wearing. These three men are Gentiles and one of them, by what he's wearing, is a Roman soldier. But God had said to him, go with these men without objection to use a different phrase maybe, don't call unclean what I have called clean. Because again, a good, devout Jew like Peter would not have socialized with, would not have gone with, and certainly wouldn't have gone into the home with Gentiles. And yet God is telling him that's exactly what he is supposed to do. 
And so Peter now has a dilemma. Do I go with them and violate my cultural standards, or do I not go with them and violate God's command? Peter decides to violate the cultural standards and to obey the Lord. And so we see in chapter 10, verse 23, where we're going to pick up today, it says this, and so he invited them in to be his guest. And the next day he rose and he went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. We read, I think we read that full verse last time we were together, or a portion of it. Notice what Peter does. He invites these three Gentile men into the home of a Jewish person where he is staying. And so immediately we see Peter wrestling with his cultural understanding of how to be right with God and violating that and saying, look, well, God has called you clean. Who am I to say you're unclean? Come on into the house. And he invites him in. I imagine it's later in the afternoon. We're not going to get all the way back to Caesarea today. And so stay the night here. Mind-blowing. To us, no big deal. To them, this is revolutionary. Bringing these Gentiles into the home of a Jew, staying with them. Peter, as a good Jew, devout Jew, staying with them there in the home. Picking up now, let's continue. It says, now the next day he rose and he went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet, and he worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and he found many persons that were gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or to visit with anyone of another nation, that is, a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And so, when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why have you sent me? Now, I think it's interesting to note that Peter invites some of the brothers to go with him. What that's referring to is some of the other Christian Jewish people, people that were Jew by birth, and now they've begun to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. Peter says, why don't you guys come with me? Now, certainly I think there's some wisdom in traveling with some, I'm not going with these people by myself. I need some backup and things like that. But I wonder, and maybe it's nothing, but I wonder if Peter anticipates something is about to go down here that I really want to have some witnesses for. I'm going into this home of this Gentile, or I'm going to travel to this place of this Gentile. I really want some other people near me with me that will be able to kind of share the story and explain what went down, and it won't just be what, what I thought went down. James Montgomery Boyce, I like this. He said, I suppose Peter anticipated what was to happen and the misunderstanding and the opposition that would result, and he judged that whatever God was leading him into, it sure would be good to have some other Jews along to verify the outcome. So whatever his motivation was, Peter decides, let's bring some folks with us, and he brings at least two others, because it says he brought the brothers, so at least two others went with him, and they go with these three men, and they begin the process of traveling to Caesarea. From Joppa to Caesarea, it's about 30 miles north. It's along the coast of the Mediterranean there. Verse 24 says, and on the following day, they entered Caesarea. And it says, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives 
and his close friends. Now, even that small act that we read there, and kind of quickly, all right, so Cornelius is there with family and friends, but even that reveals a bit of the faith of Cornelius. The fact that he was expecting that Peter would come demonstrates his trust that he had in the Lord. Because here, he is told to call a Jewish guy. That Jewish guy could have said, I'm not going there. But Cornelius demonstrates, hey, look, if God told me to call this guy, God's going to take care to get this guy here. And so he knows the trip's going to take a day or so. And so he calls his family, calls his friends. He says, look, I want all of you here tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. We're going to have a very special visitor, and he's going to tell us some very important things. Verse 25, now when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, came out of the house, fell down at Peter's feet, and he worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went out, and he found many persons gathered. Now before looking at Cornelius' response, again take notice of what Peter does when he gets there. He, it says, when Peter entered, that is the home. So now Peter's going into a Gentile home. So he was in a Jewish home, and he brought some Gentiles in. Now he's actually going to go into a Gentile home. This may be the first Gentile home that Peter has ever entered into. But again, God's working on him. Not only was this a Gentile, but he was among, as they would have thought, the Roman oppressors as well. He was a member of the military. That foreign empire that came in and seized our land and makes us subservient to them, the Jews didn't like the Romans. And yet Peter goes into the man's house. God is doing a healing work, a changing work, a refining work in Peter. So incredibly important. God is refining us. He's changing us. He's making us more into the image of his son. And he does throw, so through his word. As God speaks into our lives, we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. Peter had been a Christian seven, eight years already, maybe even a little bit longer than this. And God's still refining him. You may have been a Christian 25, 30 years, five years, 10 years, 15 years. God should still be changing you. And God's changing our friend Peter here. He's doing a healing work. And I think most significantly, notice, Peter's allowing God to do that. And so God can speak into our lives about change that he wants to do in us. But if you don't allow him to change you, you're not going to be changed. If you continue to maintain a hard heart, that's just who I am. This is the way I've always been, and it's the way I always will be. God, you're going to have to get used to that. You would never say that to him, but you act in that way. I act in that way at times. We have to allow God to do a transforming work. And when he challenges us, we've got to walk in obedience to what it is he has been challenging us to do. By entering a Gentile's home, Peter is demonstrating he understood the lesson of the great sheet. Don't call unclean, what I have called clean. Now, of course, the principal subject of this chapter in many ways is the conversion of Cornelius, but in some ways it's also the conversion of Peter, the changing work that God is doing in Peter. And so Peter enters into this man, and then Luke tells us that Cornelius meets him 
and falls down at his feet and he worships him. So God's not only doing a significant work in Peter, he's also doing a significant work in Cornelius. He's changing Cornelius. Imagine being a Roman soldier, being a Roman officer with men under you, and bowing before a Jewish fisherman. They wouldn't do that sort of a thing. And yet Cornelius here is honoring Peter in such a way that he is. He's bowing down before him, reverently before him. Now, of course, it's a no-no to worship anyone other than God. And so Cornelius is mistaken here. He's in error here. He shouldn't be doing this particular thing. And Peter very quickly acknowledges that. So good that Peter does. Excuse me one second. Peter says to him, stand up. I too am a man. Bow down before me. Don't worship me. Even if the word means, and it can mean this, uh, to show someone obeisance, um, honor, reverence, and things like that, it could mean that. You shouldn't be doing it. And so Peter says, stand up. I am just a man. What's significant to note is that whenever in the Bible worship is offered to a man or to an angel, that man or that angel says, no, don't do that. Worship God alone. There is one interesting instance. It's in uh, Acts chapter 12, and it's where Herod comes into this big crowd and there's all these people gathered, and they begin to chant to Herod, the voice of a God, not of a man, the voice of a God, not of a man, for hours it seems to imply. And he doesn't stop it. And the Lord puts a stop to it. We'll look at that in a few weeks when we get there. But whenever worship is offered to an angel or a human, and that person's trying to be a godly individual, they will stop it, like Peter does here. Revelation chapter 19, when John the Apostle, at the end of receiving this great revelation about things to come, at, when it's all said and done, he falls down at the feet of that angel. And it says this, Then I fell down at, the, at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant. I'm an angel, but I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Then the angel says this, Worship God. And it's in an emphatic tense, which means worship God alone and no other. God alone is the one to be worshipped. Now, this is why it is so significant when we read in our Gospels, what we discover is that there were many occasions where people fell down and worshiped Jesus, or they felt they knelt down, it says, before Jesus, and he never stops them. Matthew chapter 8, behold, a leper came to him and knelt down before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Matthew chapter 9, when he was saying these things, a ruler came and knelt down before him, saying, My daughter has died, come and heal her. Matthew 14, And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Matthew 15, A Canaanite woman came and knelt down before him, saying, Lord, please help me. And Matthew chapter 28, Jesus met them, said greetings to them, and they came, they, held it, they took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. And never once does Jesus stop them. Are you 
going to tell me that Peter understood more than Jesus did about these things? The reason why Jesus doesn't stop them is because it's right to worship him. And he receives that worship. In every one of those other instances where someone erroneously fell down before an angel or before a man, they stopped them. And yet Jesus repeatedly receives such worship and adoration. It's right to worship Jesus. And Peter knows it's wrong to worship him or any other man. And so Peter, when this man falls at his feet, Peter stops him. He says, stand up. I too am a man. This is why, just as a side note, it's so surprising to me, based on Peter's response here in this particular passage, that there are those that profess to be the successor of Peter, and by that I'm referring to the Pope, that would they themselves receive such adoration. There's actually a statue in the Vatican in St. Peter's uh, Basilica that so many people have gone to and touched the foot of this statue, bowed down before it, kissed this particular statue, that the foot of that bronze statue actually wore away and they had to replace it with a little another part. How many lips does it take, I'm serious, to wear away a bronze foot? It's remarkable. Now, here's Peter himself saying, don't bow before me. I'm quite certain he didn't want people bowing down before his so-called successors, and certainly not before some statue. Peter says here, I have no right to such reverence. Don't put me in a place that I don't belong. Stand up. And then he goes into the house with him. Now, as we look at Cornelius, it's kind of hard for us to critique him. Can't believe he would do that. Can you believe this guy? What does he know? He's a brand new believer. He's trying to figure all these things out. We saw a little bit earlier in our last study last week that when the angel spoke to him, he called the angel God. And you know he was just trying to figure these things out. So it's hard for us to critique him here. But we do have to point out his error. And his error of bowing down before Peter. Peter graciously corrects him and then essentially says to him, so how can I help? Why have you called for me? Why am I here? And he welcomes him into the home. And there he discovers, verse 27, that many people are gathered there in that home. Small little building, you can imagine. The room filled with people sitting there, excited, eager, eyes wide, ears open, so on. Verse 28, and he said to them, look, folks, you yourselves know that it's unlawful for a Jew to associate or visit with anyone of another nation. Again, that means a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And so when I was sent for, I came without objection. So notice this about Peter. Peter refused to be treated as a god by Cornelius. And at the same time, Peter refuses to treat Cornelius and these others as anything less than a human being. He shows them respect. He shows them kindness. He shows them mercy. And he goes into their home, even though two days ago he would have considered them unclean, and essentially says to them, how can I help? God had revealed truth to Peter, and he's putting it into practice. So important. Peter says, I came without objection. Verse 29, 
why have you sent for me? Now, I imagine, kind of humorously, Peter's looking at them. They're looking at him. They're both figuring the other one's going to say something soon about what's going on here, and none of them know necessarily. And finally, Peter says, okay, why am I here? Verse 30, Cornelius said, well, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your alms have been remembered before the Lord. Send therefore to Joppa. Ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. And so I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And then Cornelius kind of shut his mouth and looked at Peter. And Peter's like, you still haven't explained what you want. And so Peter's going to launch into the gospel. And we'll look at that in a moment. But if the passage sounds familiar, it's because that's what we looked at last time we were together. Cornelius recounts all that God had spoken to him and how he had done so through this angel. And now here is this group of people sitting ready. Can you tell us the gospel, the good news, what God has commanded you? Would you tell it to us? Imagine that. Imagine being Peter and having an audience like that ready to hear, eager to hear the word of the Lord. It kind of reminds me of this morning. Ready to receive. And Peter is experiencing kind of a preacher's dream. The conditions were right for fruit to be produced. God prepared Peter's heart. He prepared Cornelius and the people that are sitting there's heart. Everybody is ready. And all that's needed now is for the word of God to go forth. May I say that the best thing that we can do each time we come to the Word of God, and whether that's through a sermon like this, whether it's when you gather with some friends and you're in that small group study and you're about to open the Word, whether it's when you get up early in the morning or whenever it is you do your quiet time, that the best thing when you come to the Word of God that you can do for yourself is prepare your heart to receive, to be ready to receive what the Lord would have for you. God's blessing on his word exponentially increases when we prepare our hearts to hear his word. And so acknowledge, and here's how you do that. You acknowledge the Lord for who he is. You give him worship. Lord, you're good. Your word is true. And I know there's all kinds of messages that I hear, but Lord, right now I want to come into your presence and I want to hear from you. Would you speak to me through your word? Give him the praise that he is due. And then secondly, as you prepare your heart, ask the Lord to forgive you of any sin that would serve to hinder your nearness of relationship with him. To put it another way, repent. And not only repent of things you know will alienate you from God, but ask the Lord to search out your heart. Search me, know me, try me, the scripture says. Find in me if there is anything unclean, root it out of me. To come before the Lord, just to take some time and say, Lord, you know what, this last day, this last week, last few weeks, this and that and this and that, Lord, I just give that over to you. I confess it as such. Would you just root it out of, root it out of my heart so that I can come into your presence unhindered? And then finally, ask the Lord to speak to, to you through his word. God, your word is true. 
and you've spoken to millions and millions and millions and billions of people through your word, would you do it once more this morning in my heart? And if you come to the word of God in that particular way, God blesses that. He ministers to, to you through your word. It may not be revolutionary. It may not be some earth-shattering thing where now you understand all things in the earth. But he just begins to minister his grace and his peace and a confidence in him that he'll go with you in whatever circumstances that you might face. Here are these believers, or excuse me, not yet believers, gathered in this particular room ready. And God's prepared Peter. God's prepared them. The word is about to go forth, and Peter's going to share the gospel. And it starts in verse 34. It says, so Peter opened his mouth, and he said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how, verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, us who ate and drank with him after he rose. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge, to be the judge of the living and the dead. And to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. What an incredible message. That everyone who believes on him will receive forgiveness of sins. Peter presents the gospel. Notice, Peter comes into this room and he doesn't begin by explaining why the Jewish culture and practices are better than the Gentile culture and practices. He doesn't focus his time and his teaching on the social inequities that are being experienced by the Jews at the hands of their Gentile oppressors. He doesn't go off on why the people need to hit the polls and vote for Caesar, a new Caesar, I should say. What Peter does is presents the gospel because the gospel changes people and it transforms lives. And in doing so, we have a model for us of the basic gospel message that each one of us can receive as normative and binding. What should I share with people? Well, study this passage and share this. With, maybe you'll expand here and there because Peter is pretty vague about some things, at least as far as Luke recorded it for us. But this is the basic gospel that you can present to others. And as such, I think it is the outline of the gospel that we should be presenting. And so what was Peter's gospel? Well, let's take a look at it first. You'll notice in verse 34, he begins in so many words by saying that it is a message for all people of all time. He says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. And in every nation... Gentile person, Jewish person, in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right 
is acceptable. Anyone can come and hear the message of Jesus Christ. God shows no partiality. Secondly, notice Peter says that anyone can come and be made right with God. If you look there at verse 36, he speaks there of the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Peter speaks of the good news of peace through Christ. Because outside of a relationship with Jesus, we do not have peace with God. We just don't. Isaiah the prophet, he wrote that our sins have alienated us from God and that they have created a separation between us and God. I'll read the verse, Isaiah 59, Your iniquities have separated you from the Lord, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. The Apostle Paul, he used the word enmity to describe the state of man's relationship with God outside of Christ. He said this, Because the carnal mind is at enmity against God, because it is not subject to the law of God, and it can't be subject to the law of God. There is a reason why Adam and Eve hid themselves from God following their sin. Because there was something now between them and the Lord, and that something was their sin. Their sin had created a separation, to once more quote Isaiah the prophet. Outside of Christ, man does not have peace with God. In Christ, we are once more able to. And so the first announcement, after he has announced that this is for everyone, the first announcement of the gospel is that peace with God has been made available to anyone that would have it. Thirdly, also in verse 36, notice what Peter does. He points out that Jesus is Lord of all. It's in parentheses there. That is not an insignificant phrase. That is a clear statement of the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is God. He says that he is Lord. And then again, notice he says that he is Lord of all. He's Lord of Jews. He's Lord of Gentiles. There is an idea that floats around that all deities are so-called created equal. And by that, what is meant is that the God of Islam is no different from the God of Christianity, or the God of Judaism is no different from the Buddhist or the Hindu or the Taoist understanding of God, that all gods are the same, they're all equal. The Bible teaches something very, very different. There is not a God for Asian people and a God for European people and a God for African people. There is one God, and his name is Jesus. And he is, as it says here, Lord of all the earth. Peter makes that very, very clear. He'll then go on to mention, picking up in verse 37, 38, he'll then go on to mention the baptism of Jesus. You recall in the early part of the Gospels, where Jesus went out to John the Baptist there in the wilderness. John was calling people to repentance for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Get your heart and your life ready to receive that message. And then Peter shows up. John looks at him. He saw the dove descend upon him, or it came like a dove, descended upon him. John the Baptist says to his cousin Jesus, 
He says, I should be baptized by you, not the other way around. And Peter, or Jesus, in that moment, he says, you're right, but let's just do what the Lord tells us to do right now. And so John baptizes Jesus. It was Jesus' way of identifying with humanity. The God became flesh that he might die on a cross to pay the price of man. Jesus identified with humanity. He took upon himself, though he was the sinless one, he took upon himself the sin of the world. And he identifies with humanity through baptism. And immediately following that baptism, a voice from heaven speaks. John the Baptist hears it, and it says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus identifies with humanity, embraces the mission that he had come uh, to, to fulfill, and the Lord acknowledges him and says, this is the one, essentially. This is my son. This is the Messiah. This is the anointed one. Peter points that out. He goes on from there, saying Jesus was the anointed one, the Messiah. And then he goes on and he describes, you can see it there, starting in verse 38 or so, his fifth point about the Lord and the gospel. And he says how the Lord went about doing good. And how he went about healing all that were oppressed by the devil. He references the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. What we read about in our Gospels. When Jesus went here and there teaching, healing, ministering to people. From there he moves on rather quickly. He says in verse 39, he speaks there of the crucifixion. Saying they hung him on a tree to die. He speaks of the resurrection, in which he speaks there of how he was raised on the third day. And then he speaks of the many appearances of the Lord, post-resurrection. So the resurrection wasn't one of these things where, didn't you hear? Oh yeah, it happened. He appeared and appeared and appeared. At one point it says over 500 people saw him. So hundreds and hundreds of people saw him post-death after the resurrection. Peter references that in his gospel presentation. You'll notice there's about eight arguments, seven arguments, I think. Right in the middle of Peter's gospel presentation is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Because the way and the only way that humanity and individually man or woman, young person, can have peace with God is through the righteous sacrifice of the Son. Here's how the Apostle Paul would later write about it in the book of Colossians. He said this, Now you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It was at the cross that our record of debt was set aside and the penalty of our sin was paid. To quote the Apostle Paul from another place, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And Peter looked at this audience and he could say to them 2,000 years ago exactly what he could say to this audience. Jesus Christ 
the sinless one died in your place so that you would not have to pay the penalty for your own sin. And that is a universal message that you can tell any person in the world at any time in the history of the world, both past and present and future. And because Jesus was the sinless one, as Peter preached on Pentecost, death could not hold him. And that's why the stone was moved away and Jesus came forth. He was the sinless one. Peter preached that exact same message to the Jews on the day of Pentecost that he is now preaching to these Gentiles. Peter doesn't have one message for one group of people and another message for a different group of people. He preached the truth of the gospel. Every person, everywhere, can apply to their lives and experience forgiveness. Verse 42, Peter concludes his message with what elsewhere has been called the Great Commission, essentially. Look at verse 42. He says, And he has commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. You remember Jesus' words. Go ye into all the earth and proclaim this message. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. Peter reminds us that's what he's commanded us to do. I kidded earlier when I said Peter's staring at them saying, why am I here? And they're staring at him. Why are you here? And Cornelius says, well, I had a vision and God told me to go get you. And so tell us what he's commanded you. And Peter, well, he didn't specifically command anything. I was having dinner and or about to have lunch. And he remembered, well, he did command me a long time ago, seven, eight years ago, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So I guess I'll do that. And that's what he did. That was what his message was on this particular day. Notice finally how he concludes. He says that Jesus was the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. He makes mention as he brings his sermon here, his little message to a close, that Jesus Christ is the one that will judge all of humanity. We're increasingly told in our society that we should avoid any mention of judgment. Even in the church, people are suggesting this. Leave judgment out of our preaching. Keep things positive. Keep things encouraging. Avoid any talk of negativity. Well, may I, may I suggest that we should be taking our cues from Peter as to what we should and should not be including in our gospel message not the contemporary purveyors of wisdom. Peter preaches the good news that peace with God is made possible because of the work of Jesus. And at the same time, he makes it very, very clear that failure to receive that message leaves a person in the state where God must judge them for their sin. That's the state of enmity with God that we spoke of. With Christ, peace. Without Christ, enmity. The gospel must go forth. Verse 43, finally, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. 
And in the context of what we looked at these last two weeks, I think the key couple of words in that verse is everyone who believes. To the Jew who believes in him, forgiveness of sins. To the Gentile that believes in him, forgiveness of sins. To the old person that believes in him, and to the young. To the rich person and the poor. To the morally upstanding person of society, and to the so-called wicked sinner, the scripture is clear. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. That is the good news of the gospel. Not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile also. And that's the message that Peter proclaims, and that's the message that you and I, with confidence, can go into our worlds and proclaim as well. It is the grand statement of evangelical truth that we take away from our scriptures. No one is without hope. We can go and speak to a person with our hearts filled with an understanding that this person can be saved and forgiven of their sins if they will receive the message that we are declaring. How encouraging that is for us as we go forth. You can think about any person that you have ever known or that you presently know right now. You can call anyone to mind. We can have a little game. Call the most wicked person you can think of or the most morally upstanding person, the old person who for 90 years have said no thank you, the young person who's not interested in these kinds of talks. You could call anyone you want to call, recall to mind, and this message is for that person. And that's incredibly encouraging. Amen? I sus thank you. I suspect we may have some folks with us here today that need to get right with God. If that describes you, and if you have never come to the cross of Jesus Christ, looked in a sense in your mind's eye at the work that Jesus did on the cross to cover and deal with and pay the penalty of your sin, then I want to encourage you today to do that. We're going to sing in a few moments, and I'm going to ask you to do the bold thing of coming forward and saying, I am ready to receive the forgiveness of sin that is made available in Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to pray. Our worship team is going to come back. They're going to lead us in a song. And as they are leading us and as the, co the congregation is singing, I want you to come forward to give your life to Jesus Christ, even as he gave his life for you. Let's pray. Father, we are, um, I am at least, enlivened by the reality of that wonderful truth that everyone who calls on the name of Jesus Christ shall be saved. Jesus, you went to the cross because even you yourself in your prayer said, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. And there was no other way. If man was going to be made right with God, the sinless one would have to be sacrificed. And Jesus, we know you took that upon yourselves. Many of us here in this parking lot have received that. And Lord, you know the hearts of everyone here. And you know that there are some that are here that have not yet received that. Lord, would you stir them? Would you give them the courage? 
to receive the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.